0: It's so good to see your faces today, the top 20% of your faces. What if that's the best part of your face anyway? You're like, man, I prefer masks because I have great eyes but an unattractive mouth. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? <laughs> it's good to see you guys today. It is, it is quite curious as we try to steer for, I don't know, nothing less than hitting a bullet with a bullet is what it feels like we're trying to aim for, with the, trying to come up with a date to, to regather. But it is interesting because I was in this room last night with 400 people, very few of whom were masked. Now, of course, they were all expected to be Vaxed, but uh, there was a show last night, Kalu and the Electric Joint. Who was here? I oh my God, y'all. <laughs> Listen to me. We had, so a Sir Woman, who's one of, she's one of my favorite females, uh, uh, Kelsey Wilson. She fronts Wild Child and Sir Woman, which is a South Austin, very retro pop, very big African American sounding vocal wall. It was just stunning. And then, of course, Kalu comes up. And he used every inch of this roof as a canvas upon which to project liquid light. If you've never seen this, it's like we were our parents when it back in the day, you know. This place was, I, I don't know how you could find a picture of it. I got it on my, on my phone, maybe on the O4.com website. But you definitely want to catch this. This entire place was just, he had spinning glass plates with gel light with random projections. So think kaleidoscope, infinite shapes. It was just insane. And people apparently seem ready to do that, but no one wants to come to church yet, so we'll see. (laughs) We'll see what sort of world emerges from this, but we're going to be fine. If we haven't met, my name is Jason. I do most of the teaching, and we're in the middle of a series, but I want to just say it's good to see your face, good to see those of you who are online, even if it's just through the camera. So we're in the middle of a series, and we're picking up the statements around our values, and it is our vision for this church, and it has changed some as we go through different phases, and it ought to change some. If your church doesn't change, maybe change churches. You can just figure out how to make that work. But here's how the statement reads. You can find it online. And again, it's changed slightly over the years, but here's what it says. It says, we see a church that cares for the emotional, spiritual, and physical needs of one another. We see a church that inspires people to learn and live the example of Christ. We believe that uh, true inspiration will come when people see an honest image of Jesus' life and teaching. We call that our vision of holistic or incarnational living. Incarnational living is just a way of saying God made flesh in the man Christ, but also God made flesh in your life too. In other words, what we're trying to say here, if I could summarize it, is that we see a community that cares for the whole person. Now, if you grew up in a church that had a lot to say about your ideas, but very little to say about what you did with your money or what you did with your body or what you did in the world, then you would understand why it's so important that we balance this as, uh, in, as we consider the whole person. And this, we believe is one way to succinctly describe or summarize the life that Jesus lived. Now, if you know anything about me, you know that I love when complicated things are summarized well. I have a fascination for the fewest words necessary to describe complicated things. I love a good bottom line. In a side career I have where I coach executives and speakers, I'm always getting them to the bottom line. The faster you can get there, the better off it is. I love a good summary. And we've been summarizing our vision as a church. You could take a very complicated thing and we're bringing it down into these seven pieces. So here's a few questions for you. What do you think of when you uh, envision ANC? What do you think of? What comes to your mind with what's your vision of a local church? Like why are you here? If I could just ask just straight that way. What's your vision for a local church? What kind of church do you see as you look down the barrel at whatever comes next for us? If you were to ask me that question, I've got a lot of things to say, a lot of things to say. Of course, that's my job. But do I see a large church? Not really. Do I see a small church? Uh, Also not really. Uh, Do I see a church engaged missionally in its zip code and in our city? I do. Around the world, I do. I see an engaged church. Do I see a church that is open for all, flamboyantly willing to accept all people? No exceptions. You better believe I do. I see a church that loves people well, that treats its staff elegantly, even during times of pandemic. I see a church that's, that's advised by a diverse board that leads courageously, that's part of a denomination, that knows how to take risks when necessary to reach people for love. I see all of that. But if we had to boil it down one more degree, what's the actual basic unit here? All the way down to individuals. Let's steer that question slightly. What do I see for you and for me? What is the vision for you and for me as people who make up this congregation? Well, the simplest way I can say it, and I've got it all the way down to one word. You ready? Health. That's it. Health. I envision healthy human beings because I believe everything is packed into that concept. That's what I see. A community made up of healthy, whole, happy, unburdened, wildly free people. That's what I see. If the people of any given system are healthy then so is the system and the opposite is also true in case you wondered now if that sounds like way too simple of a vision you're like no the vision has to be much more complicated listen to all the things that fit into this concept of health we're talking physical emotional and spiritual balance and well-being so there's a lot more there than just one word now there's a hundred ways that we could talk about health and half of them are probably already familiar to you but let's try this one I sometimes wonder what it would have been like to have known Jesus the man, to lace up a pair of boots and hit a pitch for a training session. We're not going to do uh, football analogies so we're going to do soccer since it's the Super Bowl. What would it have been like to buy sneakers at the store where Jesus shopped? What would it have been like to buy vintage 90s denim at the pop-up vintage spot on South Congress by the cupcake place? What would it have been like to have known Jesus personally? What would his energy have been like when he was either happy or, say, sad or hungry or perhaps angry? Was he ever hurried, was he ever worried, or weighed down with life's concerns? What was Jesus actually like? Well, I think Jesus must have been probably the freest soul imaginable. I imagine that standing next to Jesus would have been an astonishing thing because he would have been, of all people, probably the freest unwilling to make himself small so as not to provoke or trigger the powerful, unresponsive to social pressures and social mores when it meant people got hurt in the exchange, unable to transgress his personal boundaries even when or especially when the people who loved him the most were disappointed. I think Jesus was completely free, completely unburdened, and therefore very, very healthy. And that's my vision for growing up. I want, to be a, I want to grow up and be healthy. I'm still working on that. My dream for a- 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 C is that we become healthy, holistic people, a community known for setting people free to thrive and to flourish. And please note, I'm not just talking about finances. This is not an iteration of the prosperity angle of the gospel. I'm talking about the kind of people who can thrive and flourish and flower and bear fruit in times of want and in times of plenty. That's the church that I see, the community that I want to be part of personally. We have a long way to go. You don't have to be creative to point out how we're not all the way there. Holistic health is a journey, and it will take nothing less than a lifetime. I understand it. There will always be room for improvement, but it's worth naming, and it's worth aiming at. Now, in a moment, we'll turn our attention to a passage in the book of Matthew. But before we do, let's look at some of these ideas embedded here in this statement. We see a church that cares for the emotional, spiritual, and physical needs of one another. What do I mean by emotional health? Well, this could have a 1,000 different angles. It could have a 1,000 different ways to get inside. Uh, and my thoughts here are n- n- not going not to be anywhere close to exhaustive on the subject. But here's what comes to my mind right now, given the season of life that I am in personally. When I think about emotional health, I'm talking about the freedom that results when we are each, as individuals, able to take care of ourselves. I'm talking about adulthood is what I'm talking about. When we can wake up each day as people not as couples or families think about this as a, as people when we can wake up each day and begin by meeting our own emotional needs when we can be the kind of people who don't have to go out into the world to find reasons that we matter who don't have to go out into careers and relationships to be told that we are important that we are worthy and that we matter when we become the kind of people who can do that for ourselves we're beginning to go in the direction of emotional health is there half of a lowercase amen somewhere in the building maybe in the broom closet I just love joking with you. You don't have to talk back to me. It's fun. Emotionally healthy people understand that life you see flows from the inside out. That's how it works. All the mystics nailed it, including Jesus. Wise people understand that whatever calm or whatever harmony or confidence or joy there is to be had in life, it's an inner resource. And here's how I know. If it's in your environment, but you don't have it inside, it's as good as non-existent. You can't feel it. It's not yours. It comes from the inside out. That's the beginning of emotional health. You see, the the external world cannot produce what you're looking for. I don't know if you thought it was behind that next purchase or that next relationship or that next career move, but there's nothing behind it except more things behind it. It's turtles all the way down, as they say. The external world cannot produce for us what we must produce for our health, for ourselves. I'm talking about adulthood and emotional health. And that will always be our work. You see, you can't convince someone else to do this for you. It doesn't work that way. When we become the kind of people who understand how to meet our needs, how to use our voice, how to speak up even when it costs us something, how to nurture ourselves, then we are on our way in the right direction. You see, asking someone else to do that work for you has an expiration date built in. You can only talk someone into that for a few years and then then their work will become them and then you will be figuring out how to put your life back together. Now it's true, all humans are born into emotional fusion, which of course is the opposite of differentiation. All humans are born into that by nature. Imagine an infant at its mother's breast, but eventually even mom hopes that child grows up and differentiates and becomes an adult. Right, moms? I hope so. Now, some churches are held together by emotional fusion. You don't need me to name this for you. Some Christians rely on church to tell them what to do, what to think, who they are. Some churches, I know churches, I could take you places where if you sold a car without the pastor's permission, you'd be in trouble. That's how fused of a community that tends to be. There are no marriages that happen without the leadership's approval. Some of you hail from places like that. Give yourself a lifetime to spit those bones out. That's not my vision for this kind of church. You see, I see codependency as a problem. We're looking for adults, emotionally healthy adults. Now, that kind of guilt that you put on people creates great church attendance, but that's not the goal around here. You see, growing up and differentiating, becoming your own individual self who can meet your own inside emotional needs, that's what discipleship is all about. That's the shorthand right there. Emotionally healthy people are able to hold on to themselves, even in the presence of others who cannot. Sometimes they'll lose their mind all over your face, but emotionally healthy people can still hold their center. Lose their mind all over your face? That's not even half, that's not even sort of funny? (laughs) That's not in my notes. That just kind of came, I just think that's fun. Emotionally healthy people can hold on to themselves even under that pressure. They can be well in the presence of tension and pressure and disagreement. That's how you know you're growing up when you can hold yourself even in the presence of those who cannot. Emotionally healthy people can weather slights and disappointments in relationships and letdowns and they can still keep their hearts open. Why? Because they are the stewards of their own inner resources. They don't depend on you for them to be well. Relationships aren't good or healthy because of good chemistry, friends, or ideal circumstances. No, no, they become good when well-differentiated people do the work to maintain them. What are we discussing? We're discussing adulthood. Now, here's a confession. This won't shock you. I'm no prime example of emotional health, y'all. I'm still working on it. In all honesty, I feel like a latecomer to adulthood. Emotional health is something that I promise you I will be working on forever until the last muscle fiber in my body stops fighting its epic battle with gravity, and I give myself back to the soil, I will still be working on this, I promise. But I'm gradually working my way through a backlog of traumas and happenings and injuries, and I'm getting better. I'm, getting, I'm moving by inches day by day in the right direction. I'm learning to take care of myself, learning to stay with myself, learning to stop abandoning myself in order to make others love me. You see, spiritual communities rejoice in that. They celebrate that. They'll call that a call to ministry if you know how to do that young enough. If we all engage this internal work together, imagine what sort of healthy community we might be. That's my vision for us, emotionally healthy people, but there's more. What about spiritual health? Well, we aren't just made of emotions, are we? We're also made of spirit, and I see a church that's characterized by health and freedom to pursue and welcome truth wherever it's found. I promise you, you won't shock me if I looked at your reading list. All truth is God's truth, pursue it open-heartedly. Talking about the freedom to break free from the voices inside your head, that's where they live, and the voices inside your heart that have been shaming you and blaming you and crushing your sense of dignity for as long as you can remember. You don't need me to tell you that many of those voices came from your spiritual community of your childhood, and it's time to move past them. That's what spiritual health looks like. Some of us need to release ourselves from that bondage and that control that comes from years of spiritual abuse at the hands of other people who told you everything you needed to think and say and do and be. Spiritual freedom is the freedom to stop living in response to those negative energies and start living in the direction of freedom itself. When pressed, Paul said, you know what you're saved for? You know what you're set free for? Simply to stay free. That's the whole thing. When well, we see a church that's thriving, not just surviving. A community that can accept the challenge of truth wherever it comes from. I say this often. True spiritual seekers always find. And it's not because of the quality of your pursuit. It's because it's in God's nature to be found. They will always be found by people seeking. You must understand they are everywhere itching to be discovered. Spiritual health and freedom is our inheritance. But there's more. I also see physical health and freedom. What in the world could this mean? Why does this matter? Well, we see a church that understands that you are so much more than just emotional and spiritual needs. We are flesh and bone, and our bodies matter to this unseen God and their redemptive plan for the universe. You see, this means we have to strengthen ourselves to face our addictions. Oh, even during COVID, let's not talk about that. Listen, tough times. Don't measure us now. It'll be measured over many years. But this means that we need to find the strength to face the addictions and get ourselves free from those things, to have the freedom to stop medicating our stress and habits with hiding, knowing that our bodies are part of this new humanity, capital N, capital H, already. Already. It was initiated in Christ. You see, we have the freedom to take control of our bodies. We have freedom to harness the energy and stamina so we can enjoy our relationships and our children and our children's children. It's about the long haul. The gospel also wants to address this. I'm talking about the freedom to breathe and to enjoy and to, it, it, the good and the beautiful and the rich and the wonderful things that God has made and the few things that we have. I don't know if you didn't know this, but God didn't make tequila. We did. I'm talking about the freedom to enjoy all things without becoming enslaved to our appetites in such a way that puts our physical well-being and our mental health at risk. I'm talking about the freedom to participate now with our bodies in the new creation. It's already available. I don't know who told you it wasn't until you until you passed into the next life. It's already here. So I see a community in summary made up of uh, of unburdened people who know how to take care of themselves and one another by living holistic lives of health and wellness and balance. None of this happens overnight, I understand. It will require a lifetime to get there, but this is the path that I see our church on. This is how Jesus lived, unburdened and free, healthy and balanced, and therefore, probably very, very, very happy. Now here's the key, if this is our vision, It will be accomplished by subtraction, not by addition. You can't get there by adding more things to do. This is about taking things off of your to-do list and understanding the technology of unburdening. Jesus lived his life so unburdened, listen, His friends around him at the time didn't know how to make sense of how it was that he was different than the rest. They just gathered around and said, he he acted like a god. His life was so different. Now, the theologies that make him uh, the, the, the actual enfleshing of an ancient god, all these different things would come centuries later. But his friends just said, this guy is so different. I wonder what they noticed. He was so unburdened. He was so unwilling to conform in so many ways. He was so free. He lived his life so unburdened. And he lived that way because that's actually the way it makes the most sense to live. And I would suggest to you that you can live that way too. And although he died a public death of a condemned criminal, he was completely free. You see, it wasn't empire, it wasn't cruelty, it wasn't nails that held him there. It was love. Love was always going to go that far. That wasn't plan B. So, a holistic, healthy community is a whole community, a community moving towards fully integrated human potential. That's another way of saying the incarnation. A group of people who show up and do courageous work together. A community that that offers a glimpse of the future of all things. Fully redeemed, fully alive, fully free, and fully unburdened. And you've probably begun to pick up on the repeated word here in my thoughts. This idea about unburdening. It's the key component of health that I'm trying to describe. It's also the hinge pin of the text that we're going to look at now. Matthew 19 records one of my favorite stories about Jesus. You might know it as the rich young ruler. I prefer to call it the secret of unburdening. Now, apparently, this young man, this wealthy young man, was anxious about his life. He had a gnawing sense that he was missing something important. He was burdened, you see, enough to pester a popular emerging rabbi in public, probably interrupting a conversation with a burning question. So let's read that now. Matthew 19, chapter 19, verses 16 through, through 24. Reads this way. Then someone came to him. Matthew doesn't name him at this point. I always wonder why these guys don't have names, why these people don't have names. But then someone came to him and said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he ruffles his feathers a bit and he says to him, which ones? And Jesus said, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. And I imagine him counting his fingers as he goes. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man, preening himself, as bowerbirds often do, said to him, I have kept all these secrets. What do I still lack? And it's so funny to me how he goes from confidence to anxiety so quickly. I've done all these things, but something's missing. There's got to be a catch, he seems to say. Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, then go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then, then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. You see, he was a man with a burdened soul. Then Jesus, probably circling up with his disciples who must have had a guffawed look on their face, circles up and he says, truly I tell you it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, for starters, This guy was not talking about going to heaven. He didn't interrupt Jesus to ask him how to get to heaven. That wasn't the conversation. In Jesus' day, eternal life was a robust concept all about living the good life right now. He's not interested in an an after-death insurance policy. He's not inquiring about something that comes next. He's inquiring about this life, not some disembodied cloud-based afterworld. We must be careful not to inject into the words of Jesus concepts that we think the text says. We must be careful. He's talking about living well. Also notice how this wealthy man begins by assuming, he's building on the assumption that there's something else he must do. He was inquiring about religious duty and piety. What do I have to do to get on God's good side? That was his burden. And Jesus' response is classic. Good as a person, not a system of belief or duty. This wealthy kid wants to talk about uh, religion and faith, but Jesus wants to talk about unburdening. Obey the commandments, Jesus says. And of course, frat boy persists because frat boys always do. There you go. There's an 11 o'clock laugh. And upon confirming his careful attention to the rules and regulations, to all the little details, he tips his cards once again and reveals his concern. You see, he seems to be convinced that there must be something more. Isn't there always something more? Isn't there always some burden someone didn't tell you about? (laughs) and this is when Jesus lets him in on a glimpse of the holistic life. The life of love and devotion that considers the poor and invests in dead end investments with no hopes of seeing a return. And I just have to point out the, uh, the, the irony here. He's telling an investor how to invest. See, when you give your money to the poor, don't expect a return. It's not, that's not the point. He's telling an investor where to put his, his wealth. This reminds me of Jesus in John 20 who tells fishermen how to catch fish. Y'all, he was a carpenter. This would have been the comic moment in my mind. But here's the big idea. The life Jesus offers will require us to unload, to release, to let go, to quit trying all sorts of new things to make us finally feel useful, finally feel worthy and deserving of this astonishing attention from God. A holistic life or an inspiring life, as our statement reads, an unburdened life, the kind of life that others will want to emulate, is made of different stuff entirely. They're having two different conversations here. It won't be about adding new religious burdens. Jesus isn't being coy or dodgy or slick. He's summarizing. He's delivering good news that about a lighter load, about a God who isn't in need of some new and improved religious system in order to love what he loves. He hears the cry of our anxiety, and he understands our desire to make him happy, and yet unburdening is the invitation. Oh, it's so important. Jesus isn't offering this guy a ticket to heaven when he dies, he's offering him a better life now, a better way to be a human being now, a holistic, unburdened life that's actually compelling and inspiring. Now, this interesting thought, what do we make of the image of a camel going through the eye of a needle? Has anyone ever seen a camel? I'm guessing you have a needle at home, probably stuffed in one of those red tomatoes that your grandmother gave you. Anybody have that needle pin? Who said every family has to have a little, little tomato with like pins stuck in it? I, I'm guessing you've seen a camel, you know what it looks like, but an eye of a needle? This has been a favorite chew toy of theologians for ages. Here's my question. Is this just literary hyperbole? Is this just a way of saying something's absurd or impossible or ridiculous? Is this code talk something that Jesus' audience would have understood that somehow escapes us? Could it be that we're supposed to believe that there was a gate in the city of Jerusalem, a walled city, nicknamed the Eye of the Needle, because it was so small? You see, cities had walls to protect its people, and walls had gates, and they were closed at dark, and could it be that what we're supposed to infer here is Jesus is suggesting that the way you would have to unload a camel to come through that tiny little gate late at night is exactly how you have to approach the kingdom of God? Could it be, is this what Jesus is trying to say? Well, it makes for interesting preaching, but I hate to tell you, there is zero archaeological evidence that such a gate ever existed. But that's okay, because we don't have any archaeological evidence that King David ever existed either, other than the text itself, so I'm not worried about that. Or could this be Jesus addressing something much more profound? The more interesting question to me is, why would the ancients have written this down? What does this tell us about God, this little story about a camel and a needle? Is this Jesus saying rich people can't take part in the circle of mutual empowerment that he is bringing to the world? Is this his manifesto against wealth? (laughs) There have been some who thought so. Or is this Jesus addressing the loads we carry? Could this be Jesus' way of saying, pleasing God has nothing to do with loading more on top, but instead, pleasing God will always be about offloading and unburdening ourselves from thinking that God is impossible to please? Is this Jesus' point? Well, read carefully now because we know that wealthy people do make it into the inner circle of Jesus, into the kingdom of heaven. Think no further than Zacchaeus Zacchaeus, or Simon the Pharisee or Joanna the benefactress who fed the 12. This is a statement, friends, not about wealth but about unburdening, about living entirely free. This is a vision of health. This is an invitation. Maybe love's load actually is lighter as Jesus often said. This final thought. I'm suggesting that the central metaphor of healthy, holistic life living is to be unburdened and to live free for the sake of being unburdened and free, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. But what does this actually look like? What does it actually look like? Well, emotionally unburdening looks like doing your own work of differentiation and becoming an adult. Not trying to talk others into doing that for you so that you can feel well And as you begin to reclaim your agency and your autonomy, as you heal your own wounds with your own internal inside resources, you will unburden yourself from all the things that you may have been carrying that you were never going to be able to do anyway. Oh, friends, if I could take the burdens off of you that you bear that you can't possibly meet, your whole life would become so much simpler. If you must know, I think this is what Jesus did with people. He looked at the pristine self, the nature of God in all, and he just allowed them to lift the burdens of things off. You might call that being exercised of a demon. You could call that physical healing. Call it what you want. He sees the pristine self and separates the burden. Oh, friends, how many things do we carry that we can't possibly accomplish because they're not our burden? That's what I mean by emotionally unburdened. And if you're just now beginning to face this work and you feel late to the game, late to the game be at ease friend be unburdened about this you are right on time what does this mean spiritually well spiritually unburdening looks like pushing back once and for all and whatever vestiges remain in your heart and your head from shame-based religion of guilt and judgment and endless lists of more things to do in order to gain god's good pleasure the work is done if you're just beginning to wake up to the good news about this gospel be at ease dear one love is not angry with you Those are tales that mortal men tell themselves to feel well. Physically, what does this mean? Physically unburdening looks like doubling down your effort and your commitment to live clean and healthy and whole. Not because of shame, but because it just makes more sense to avoid hiding and medicating and escaping in ways that negatively impact our bodies. You see, that's the stage upon which everything happens for you. If you have not taken good care of your body, rest now, dear friend. There is still time. Your body miraculously knows how to renew itself in time. So if you ask me what I envision for us as a community, I see healthy, unburdened, wildly free people who who are taking good care of themselves and one another. And if we can build that as individuals, there's no telling what we could build as an organization. I wonder, do you see that for yourself? I hope that you do. Pray with me. Join me on your feet if you're able.